to the Marketers in Motion podcast, powered by the West Michigan chapter of the American Marketing Association. Marketing is our passion, and as a chapter, we hope to inspire dialogue, fuel creativity, and create a community for marketers everywhere. We're online at amawestmichigan.org and active on social media, where you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The national hub for the American Marketing Association is ama.org, where you can also find a chapter near you. The Marketers in Motion podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at amawestmichigan.org, where we encourage you not only to subscribe to our podcast, but review, ask questions, get involved, and engage with us. Let the inspiration and dialogue begin. Hello, I'm Josh Janowiak, your Marketers in Motion podcast host. Our topic today, influencers' perspectives on influencers' campaigns. Influencer marketing, it's a popular buzzword and a top marketing trend, but really, what does it mean? We know marketing pros across the industries are looking for ways to integrate influencer marketing into their strategy, but in doing so in a smart and authentic way does remain a challenge. This was the topic of a recent panel discussion held with three of West Michigan's brightest influencers on how you can harness influencer marketing in a way that makes sense for your business and brand. The panel discussed how you can approach, interact, and work with influencers to help drive your marketing efforts. Since the panel was held in the Q&A format with a moderator, we thought it best to record the panel discussion for rebroadcasting on today's podcast. One thing it's important to note, while we're speaking to influencers that live in West Michigan, their audiences are spread throughout the United States, and the marketing concepts discussed are applicable nationally and internationally. I'll turn it over to Megan Pear. She's our AMA West Michigan chapter president who will set the stage for the panel and introduce Jessica Kaluski, our AMA West Michigan VP of Communications and moderator for the influencer discussion. Welcome to our February luncheon. We're talking all about influencer marketing with these three lovely ladies up here, our influencers and Jessica, our moderator. My name is Megan and I am the president of the AMA West Michigan chapter. And uh, we are very excited to have you here today. Another sold out crowd. I want to give a big shout out to our sponsors. So MI Biz, I see Renee. Is Shelly here? Okay, not today. But Renee, thank you for MI Biz uh, for sponsoring us. Bird and Bird Studio, Chris here with the camera. She does lovely photos every time. Thank you so much. And Scott from PageWorks. This lovely lady here to my left is Jessica. She's our VP of Communications on the board but she's also a digital media specialist at US Signal. And she's been working in the social media space for five years. And in that time, she's kept mental notes, I love that, on how brands use influencer marketing and how she's seen it grow exponentially. Between her work and her board responsibilities, she dabbles with social platforms herself, testing influencer strategies and consulting brands on how to engage with them. Other times, you can find Jessica uh, behaving <laughs> This is funny. It's not true. Introverted at networking events, uh, failing at yoga, or dealing with food indecisiveness at new local restaurants. So Jessica, thank you for moderating today, and she's going to introduce our panelists. Thanks, Megan. I'm a little short, so I'm probably going to stand up here <laughs> to reach the mic. So for a show of hands, how many people have already at some point with their brand or business engaged in influencer marketing? That is actually super awesome to see. Um, so for the rest of you, I really hope that today goes um, really well for giving you some case studies, some um, tips on how to actually start engaging with influencers. Honestly, influencers, um, they range from what's called nano influencers, which is as small as like 
a thousand followers to, of course, your celebrity status. So there really is a budget and someone out there for whatever your company can afford or what they're willing to invest in at the time, especially if you're just starting out. Um, so without further ado, just for a reference, today your panelists, their potential total reach goes over a million people. And that's even just like between all their social channels and their websites, not including any kind of press or TV appearances that they do, which I know that they've done a lot already. So first up, um, closest to me, we have Liz, Liz De La Cruz. Got it? Yeah. I got it. She is the Lemon Bowl. That's her brand. And I'll let her introduce herself. Hey, everybody. How are you? Um, my name is Liz Delacroze, and I grew up in East Grand Rapids, left for nine years to live in Boston. I got a degree in hospitality administration and a minor in marketing management, and I moved back to open the JW Marriott here downtown in 2007. thought it was nice to move home for free with my family, <laughs> and the cost of living was 63% lower, so that was great. Realized how cheap East Grand Rapids is when you live in Boston. And anyways... Um, in 2008, I got laid off a year later after opening the hotel, along with about 20 other managers. And um, a year and a half later, I started my website, thelemonbowl.com, which was inspired by my weight loss. A few years prior, I lost 65 pounds. And whenever you lose a bunch of weight, everyone wants to know what you're eating and how you're doing it. So that's how it all started. And it took me three years to make my first dollar. And uh, it's been 10 years. So there you go. All right. And then we have Jill Gleason. She is from Good Life for Less. Hello, everyone. It's kind of intimidating. Um, my name is Jill. I um, have been blogging for almost 10 years, same as Liz. We're super old school over here. Um, I started blogging when my kids were taking a nap when they were little um, because I'd recently decided to become a stay-at-home mom, and I was bored, and I just wanted a creative outlet. Um, probably about three years in is when I first started um, making some money on it. And then just about as I was about to roll the kids out to school full-time, it really kind of became a full-time job. So it's a really great, flexible career that I can work from home. Um, I love it. I love inspiring moms to feel their best through clothing and lifestyle. Um, and here we are today. I don't know how we made that jump. but. <laughs> and then last but not least, we have Emily Riquette. She is from Happy PR. Hey everyone, um, well I'm not nearly as famous online as these two. I think of those 1.2 million followers, I contributed a whole like few hundred or so. Um, but really cool to be on this panel. My background, I started as a news reporter. I was on Fox 17 for nearly seven years. I started right in college. So I started my career here in West Michigan. And then I eventually left Fox 17 and I opened a PR agency. I just saw a big a big opening in the marketplace. There's a big, there was a big gap between traditional PR marketing firms and what I saw businesses really need to support them to reach their target audience. And that's only, that gap has only continued to grow as we now see influencer marketing. So at Happy, we work with really fast growth businesses and startups, um, a few of our clients in that Inc. 500 space. And um, with that, we help them do earned media coverage, content creation, and their social media and influencer marketing. And then on the flip side of it, we leverage influencer marketing. I work with brands, um, not as much online, although there's usually a social media component, 
but I do influencer marketing more on the TV side of things. So what you would see, maybe what something Liz and Jill might do more online with their audience. I leverage an audience through TV channels. Like in West Michigan, our market here is about 700,000, um, an audience of, and then I'll do, um, a couple times a year, I'll go down to other markets and be able to leverage some media there. So a bit on both sides, on the business side, we run and manage influencer campaigns. We hire influencers, and then also we get hired by businesses to do influence campaigns. So I'll be speaking a bit on that B2B side for you as well. We have a textbook definition up on the screen for you of what influencer marketing is, but I would definitely like the panel to speak to what, how they define influencer marketing and then how does it work as their business? I think influencer marketing is just simply sharing your clientele or sharing like your potential customers. So if I'm able to partnership with a brand like, you know, a big um, national brand, then I'm able to bring more awareness to a big national brand. When you're working with smaller brands, you can kind of combine your audiences together to say, like, what kind of power can we have together? Um, and I think um, overall you can use more, like, they're more warm prospects than just reaching out. I agree with all of that. And then also just leveraging someone else's influence they have, which can vary drastically. Working with small influencers, sometimes they have a higher engagement because their followers will just be interested in, in parenting or in, you know, hashtag mom life. And so if you're working with a parenting brand or they make a baby product, um, that can be really effective. So we leverage, basically it's just leveraging someone else's influence they have over an audience despite the size of it. It can, the power of that influence can really vary. Um, I would just say influencer marketing is just a more authentic sell. So if I'm using something in my everyday life, I'm going to share it on social media. I'm not necessarily trying to make someone purchase it. And by doing that, I gain trust from my followers. So that's why it's the you know number one way to influence people is through influencer marketing because it's not um, a celebrity in a commercial or a fully edited you know magazine spread. It's just really unedited, authentic, and real. And I think that's why it resonates with people because they can relate. So, um, you know, I, I, more, I relate more to someone that looks like me and isn't a size zero that's fully edited out. And so that's what I try to portray. So in my mind, that's how I define influencer marketing. Can any business have influencer marketing or does it mostly work for certain industries? I think so. I think right now we're seeing some industries more than others hop on the bandwagon and leverage it. So we see it a lot with our B2C brands. Uh, our agency really works heavily in the B2C market in health, wellness, food and beverage, tourism, um, entrepreneurial or like software technology space. So we work in that on the regular. Um, but I do think even if you work in professional services or manufacturing, it's, we call, so one way we refer to as influencer marketing in our agency is called Dream 100. And that's like an internet marketing term. I didn't create it, but it's where you find someone who has your client pool. So for instance, if you make a part that goes on a car, instead of going out and trying to find every single person that owns a car and could buy your car part, you should make a really great relationship with a car dealer. Because who does a car dealer deal with every day but all your customers? 
And so if you're going to someone that automatically has your audience already built in, that means your cost of acquisition to get this one car dealer can be much higher because your return is going to be a lot higher. Um, so I do think other industries in the B2B in services space, who here is in the B2B space? Okay. Probably half the room, maybe a little bit more. So I think we all know how influencer marketing can impact in the B2C space. It's a lot easier to grasp, but I do think there's a really big opportunity for people in the B2B markets where it's untapped. They're not seeing influencer marketing happen as much. It's going to look different um, in finding the influencers. It will probably look different than seeing the popular bloggers on Instagram. The platforms might be a little different, but I think that the strategies will be similar. And certainly the end result, tapping into someone that has your, your target audience and using their influence will be similar. Yeah, I would agree. I think if you're a smaller business or you're just starting out or you have more of like a concept instead of a product, of course, you're going to have to get a little bit more creative on how you approach influencer marketing and how you choose to work with influencers. And that's something um, that your marketing team can get together on and get really creative and then also bring it to the influencer too and say, this is what we're trying to do. Do you think this is something that could work? I would just like to add that um, we all love Instagram as consumers, but in my business, Instagram is about 2% of my business. So my website brings in over 800,000 monthly page views, so millions of views every year. And it's evergreen content that lives on forever. So I urge you to look outside of Instagram when you think of an influencer. Um, I personally am not super influential on Instagram. I'm probably more influential than maybe other people in this room, but in the grand scheme of things, my real influence comes from my website. So remember that Instagram is just one social media channel. It's actually my smallest. My Pinterest gets over 3 million views every month. So just remember, because we love Instagram, I'm talking myself included, that is just one tiny, tiny piece of my business and probably many um, bloggers' businesses. So just remember to look outside of Instagram when we have this discussion about influencer marketing. We have a little quick graph up here that just tells you what are the actual most common industries that are engaging with influencer marketing. So our next question is, what should a brand consider in their strategy for influencer marketing before they even start reaching out to the influencers themselves? Yeah, I think you're just, I think Emily mentioned this, but you're going to want to look for that like audience overlap. So if you're looking... Um, if your company is based in Grand Rapids, you're going to want to be doing hashtag research in Grand Rapids. If you're, if you're trying to reach a nationwide or the Midwest or Michigan as a whole, you're going to want to be doing a lot of research to find who are the people that really align with your aesthetic, who, who would be your ideal customer, um, who would hopefully have their ideal customers follow them. Um, I think those are just a few of the things to keep in mind. Yeah. And on that note, I would also um, encourage you to ask the uh, prospective influencer where their audience is based. Because uh, my largest audience is in California, New York, Texas, Illinois. I actually have a very small following in Michigan. Um, so I think don't assume because like my Instagram's in Grand Rapids. Like I said, that's just one small piece. So I would urge you to, and there's programs. I mean, I get contacted by PR firms all over that. They, they know my audience isn't in Michigan, so I'm certain there's software that you guys are probably more 
privy to than I am. But when in doubt, ask them where their audience is based. It's oftentimes with the internet, as you know, it's, it's not local. So my audience in Grand Rapids is very small because Google is my largest source of traffic. So that's something to also consider when you are looking for influencers. Don't go to the city where you're, don't find them in the, you know, don't necessarily base it on where they're, where they live. Does that make sense or surprise you guys? So. So since our agency works a lot in reaching out to influencers and then we work with our clients in preparing for that, um, a few things outside of audience, which I think these two really honed in on perfectly, um, I'd say the top three other things would be budget, content, and skill sets. Um, and <laughs> you can tell we do a lot, a, a lot of these, right? Um, so coming up with what your budget is, um, it's important. You wouldn't, you wouldn't dive into any other aspect of your business and be like, well, we don't really have a budget there. Like, no, you, you have to lay on a budget. You'd have, if you'd have a budget for your Facebook ads or for your, um, stand like traditional advertising or for your, um, cost of labor, like you have to budget out, what are you willing to invest in it? Um, and then content is considering what is the content you hope is created because there are different types of influencers and this is where it kind of overlaps with special skill sets. Some influencers take amazing photography. And so in addition to the posts that they'll make for you or if they're going to write a blog, whatever it is, you're getting that content. So you might, if, and if that's a weakness in your organization, then what does photography mean for you? Like, what would you budget for photography? And then you'd be able to leverage. You're getting, not only are you getting their audience and their influence, you're getting their photography. Other um, influencers will do a lot of video. Like I do mostly video. And that's something that can be very costly for a lot of businesses. So I might not have the largest social following, but because I'll make them a video they can leverage or, be, or I'll put it on TV is something they can leverage. That's really important to them. Um, and, and the last thing is your call to action, I think, and that goes in hand with your budget. It's when you are going to invest in an influencer campaign or working with influencers, what's the end result? How, how are you going to take that influence and make sure you're prepared for more eyes on your business and to leverage that into ultimately more sales. Um, and not that every dollar you spend on influencer marketing will have a direct ROI and it's the same in PR, but some brands can do this really well and then some are, are not equipped at all to invest in influencer marketing because they have almost no way for people to then buy from them. They don't have like their e-commerce set up properly or they don't have a special offer that makes sense for that audience. And it would probably be a more customized offer when you're doing an influencer campaign than just what you have as your Amazon special or to the general public, um, especially in the B2C space. So I think thinking of the budget content is there any type of special skill set you'll also be able to leverage out of that content that's a weakness in your organization? And, and then fourth would be that, that call to action. Like, what do you really want this audience to do if they were to take action? Do you guys think that when a business is making their influencer strategy and they're trying to decide what kind of influencer do I want, how much does follower count matter? This is really tricky. Um, I think three years ago, I would have said follower count is, like, ultimate. And these days, follower counts on, unfortunately, Instagram and some other platforms just aren't really as authentic as they used to be. Um, influencers on Instagram are known these days, unfortunately, for buying everything from followers to likes to fake comments to, I've heard the other day someone was buying saves. So I think 
finding someone that really resonates with your brand and who you feel you connect with or your business connects with in a meaningful way at this point in the game, I think is much more important than follower count. Yeah, this, this is a really tough one because there are some aspects of it. We always tell our clients and we've had these moments where we've worked with influencers that we thought would really knock out of the park because of their size and it wasn't as effective, but then we've usually had within a campaign and we'll work with multiple influencers. We'll take whatever our main budget is and we don't usually spend it all on one influencer. We have to spread it out because then we've always had like this one campaign, this one influencer, it will just explode. And it's because that following was so authentic that, um, and you can usually tell if they're always posting about specific content. So like Jill is always really posting about fashion and a certain tier of fashion, not usually, you know, it's a certain price point of fashion. So she's very um, honed in audience. And then same thing with Liz, you just go to their profiles, you get a sense for they're always posting these consistent, uh, consistent content. And then, you know, people would be sick of them if they didn't love like that type of clothing, they wouldn't follow them. They'd unfollow them by then. Um, so that's, that's pretty helpful. And since we do a lot in the health and wellness space, working with people who, um, just are, have, have a really strong opinion and then they have a following, then, you know, these people are, are following them for a reason. They're not playing in the gray area They're They, um, aren't afraid to, because they're more tra- transparent, I think is what helps to their audience follows them a little better with that. One other thing I'll add, which is um, I talked with some other bloggers about this at a blogging conference recently, is there's kind of two types of influencers. The first is just an influencer. So these are the girls on Instagram you see that are millions of followers. They're, you know, they seem like this unicorn. Everybody loves them. They're, they're just growing and they're getting these huge campaigns with you know, ridiculous brands like Louis Vuitton and they're being flown all over the world. Okay, those are like your classic influencer. But there's also another grade of influencers that are what I like to call converters, right? They take their influence and they convert it to a sale. And I think those are the women who are building businesses and not just like lifestyles on their social media influence. I mean, Liz and I were just talking like, we don't have the most Instagram followers of everyone in our niche, but like we're also bringing home a paycheck. So it kind of doesn't matter. (laughs) You know what I mean? So like if you can find those like proven sellers and also I think a way you can do that too is like, what are the other ways that you're like monetizing your blog? If you're only monetizing your blog by brands paying you tens of thousands of dollars to like travel to these crazy places, you might not be like converting. Um, A huge part of my business is commissions. I, We'll post about a sweater, and if someone buys a sweater, I get a commission. So I use about 20% of my blog is actually like influencer marketing, where on the other side, I'm proving to myself and to brands that when I'm not working for brands, I'm selling on my own. So I think that's kind of a good differentiator, too. Yeah. I want to ask um, Again, I just want to hone in on the, um, the fact that Instagram is such a small percentage of many influencers' businesses. So, for example, um, you'll have no way of knowing how many people, for example, one thing I do is I develop recipe for brands like Sabra Hummus or Bob's Red Mill or Stonyfield Organic Yogurt. Um, those, those recipes that I develop, um, I developed a recipe for Bob's Red Mill in 2014, and it's my number one pin every week right now. So they're getting thousands and thousands of page views 
every single week, and that's been going on for 52 weeks a year since 2014. That has nothing to do with my whatever thousand Instagram followers. Um, so what I really urge you to do is think outside of Instagram, even though Instagram we can all look right now in 10 seconds, that is such a small reflection of, a, of an influencer's business, at least um, a blogger's business. Now there are, there are Instagrammers that don't have blogs, so I call them an Instagrammer. I actually don't really consider myself an influencer, I consider myself a blogger. But again, I just wanna continue to drive the message outside of Instagram, because again, um, like my Facebook has almost, I don't know, 156,000 followers. My Instagram only has 30,000 followers, but we love Instagram as consumers. So we tend to just go there to evaluate someone we want to work with. So I, my biggest lesson today would be to get, uh, to get a prospective influencers media kit, ask how many unique visitors they're getting on their website each month, ask them how their blog posts perform month after month, year after year, and find out the long-term ROI. Asking me how many saves I got on Instagram a week after the campaign, campaign went live is really not a strong measure of performance. And fortunately, my, my customers know that, which is why I'm, I'm very successful. Um, and I just urge you all to look past that. Yeah. Well, one thing I'd add with that about it being about the numbers. So for instance, since we work with a lot of e-commerce brands, um, that SEO is so important. So what Liz just said about that Bob Mills recipe, like right now we're doing, if you go to our Instagram at get happy PR, like we have a post as influencers wanted, and then it takes them to a form and they have to submit a ton of information. And it's cause we're looking for influencers that have blogs Right now, we're not really interested in working with influencers who only have short-term play on social media because we need the campaigns they do for us to have longevity with SEO. We know our clients have big returns. Like we can, that we can actually track. We can track to sales. You can track social to an extent, but it's so short-lived before they're onto the next campaign and Instagram stories kind of die and they get buried. Um, and then on the other side of it with my husband and I have an organic grocery delivery business and they do some influence work. Um, I would say then sometimes follower count can matter if you're trying to increase your own follower count. Um, we do, it's a great area of what's, what's acceptable and what's not in growing your follower account, but we help our clients get, there's 10,000 followers on Instagram is really impactful to a brand because then they can have the swipe up feature in their stories, which helps consumers buy their product quicker. And so it's not really different from hiring an employee to do growth hacking or growth tactics all day as it would be using like a software or a tool. Um, so that's how I know numbers are kind of irrelevant because we help our clients get those numbers uh, and they pay us to do so. And that's just how it is. Um, and then on the flip side, like with um, our brand organics, we did a local, just a small local influencer campaign. And when our Instagram, or you would probably call this person posted, we got like 50 new followers and that's great for us. We're trying, we want that swipe up feature. So, I mean, so there's vanity metrics to it, but, and then there's also just some really tactical information, but yeah, I would agree with them that it goes beyond just your, your initial follower account. Do you have any examples of companies that you've worked for that aren't your common ones, such as that we listed before, like hospitality or any tangible products like apparel? One type of business I've worked with successfully in the past is a salon. Um, and salons are a service industry, um, highly visual, right? So any company or, or brand or business that's highly visual is going to do really well online because it's pictures and it's... Um, 
imagery, and that's what catches people's eye on Instagram or Pinterest. Um, and a really great way to leverage Instagram or an influencer with a salon or a type of service industry is just bringing that person into the service, letting the, that person um, figure out how the service works, ask questions about how the service works, do some Instagram stories. Um, you're capturing real moments of real people's lives. Um, and then you can convert it with, you know, a coupon code or something to that effect where you can actually see, like, did this work? Did Jill coming into X salon getting X service on X day or maybe multiple days over a course of, you know, three weeks or three months, um, did that convert for us? Did that work? Most of my, my clients are tangible items, aside from experiential clients, but that would be hospitality destinations. I work with a lot of destinations. So um, I, I do work with clothing brands as well, but that's a tangible product. So I'm not really sure. Can you give an example of a type of company that's not? Anything that's maybe more B2B, as we were mentioning earlier, mm -hmm. or like a service like Jill or photography? I, I have to pay my photographer. I don't. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't don't get that free. No, I, I don't. Um, I, other than the biggest thing I can think of, are I, I represent. I work with a lot of destinations, so I'm selling the experience of a destination. But that was one of your examples that you're not looking for. So I, I don't have. Yeah, um, we work with like software companies or ClickFunnels is one of our clients. I, I'd say. Sometimes influencers, we also view it as like testimonial. Like we'll find where's the big success story in your business? Has your company made a ma major impact in another company or the growth of another business? And then find those testimonials or those case studies and use that person or that brand as an influencer. So getting them to talk about their success or to talk about the talk about that impact. Um, so I would say we, we basically leverage influencer marketing and in everything that we do as a PR agency, but we may call it different things based on what people are used to. Um, but really we're just, yeah, because even, even then those, your, your best customers are going to be influential voices for you to their own markets and audiences. So you could leverage them too. Mm -hmm. Can I'm just going to repeat the question really quick. Uh, Rachel's asking is, can you think anyone can be an influencer? I mean, I kind of think anyone can. I think you just have to work at it. But it's it's the, it's the same thing as like going to meet your your. Sorry for the men in the audience. You probably don't do this as much. But the girl, you go to meet your girlfriends for lunch, and you love your girlfriend's sweater, and you want to know where she bought it. Like that's just what influencer marketing is. Just now we have this like huge platform called the internet and social media to basically um, talk about it. So yeah, I definitely think anyone can be a social media influencer. I mean, I can do it. <laughs> um, you just have to work at it. But. Well, I didn't mean to like grab that. No, you're fine. I, one, okay, there's a couple of sides to that. So here's the deal. Um, influencers don't get a, a paycheck every week. So yeah, you can be an influencer if perhaps you have a husband who's got a job and has health insurance. So let's also just be quite honest that, um, you know, not everyone has the luxury of posting photos on Instagram for a living because, side note, you know, spoiler alert, that, that doesn't make money right away. You have to build up an influence, an audience, and you have to be, you have to be influential before people are going to pay you to sell their products. So 
let's just be totally blunt. I wouldn't recommend anyone graduating college tomorrow to want to grow up and be an influencer. It doesn't work that way because you have to pay bills and you have to have health insurance. I'd recommend it. Um, so I just, I just want to be quite honest that no, not everyone. That's why it's mostly married women that are bloggers, at least in my industry. So let's just be totally upfront about that. Um, now, you know, like I said, it took me three years to get paid. So I think we're thinking, can anybody make an Instagram picture? Of course. But that's not what this is. I'm talking about being a, I'm talking about doing this as a career, not just like I, I know people who take out loans and travel places to get pretty Instagram photos. Okay, she's an influencer if you define it as having a lot of likes on an Instagram photo. I describe it as paying for my mortgage and saving for my kids' retirement, you know, college. You know, that's how I define it. So it, it, I guess it just depends on how you're defining influencer. Anyone could take a gorgeous photo and post it on Instagram and get a bunch of likes. But that's very different from running a profitable business. Yeah, so I think, Liz, I love it, keeping it real. Liz... Liz keeping it real lemon bowl over here. So as a career, I would agree not everyone is an influencer. Um, and then, then to play off what Jill said, though, is I think we all are influencers. Like we have the power to influence, right, um, from our neighbors to anyone. And so I do think you could leverage. Um, sometimes I think you have to look outside of the box of what influencers are, especially for some successful campaigns, especially if you don't have large budget for it. You could find someone who could be your influencer. You might have to coach them on it. You might need to, you know, build that relationship and help them create the content you need so that they can get it out to their audience. They might not be interested in being an influencer, but they are. They might have a really large audience base that you could tap into. Um, so, yeah, I think anyone, everyone is and everyone isn't at the same time. Yeah. Is that helpful? <laughs> I really like what Emily said, um, just because working in a B2B myself, that's kind of the way how I position it when I train my sales teams on social media tactics. I pretty much tell them to position yourself as an influencer in the industry. And influencer doesn't mean that you got paid to make a post about something, but influencer could also just mean that you're funneling awareness and traffic to the company that you work for by just staging yourself as an expert. Yeah. Another thing I would say is, um, at least for us, like we run our company as we are influencers and we work with influencers. So I expect everyone that works within our company, like they all have social media accounts. They might be a generation younger than me. Yeah, that's right. I'm starting to get a little old and I hire people like almost a decade younger. Um, but they're an influencer. We expect them to be an influencer for our mission and then for on behalf of all of our clients, whether they like it or not. It's just the reality of um, we have channels, we have audiences now. And so I'd encourage you to, even in, even in that B2B space, start looking at your brand as a potential influencer and thought leader in that space, look at the people who represent your brand, whether or not you want them to, they are, you know, online. And so when you think of influencers in that way, um, and then, and it's funny because we get like brands send us stuff. Sometimes we'll get boxes of stuff in the office and we're like, Oh, what's this? And it's like, they send us stuff because they want to see us like open it. And, um, I mean, we work in that B2C space, but it's like, even brands can then become influencers. Like this is, I feel like it's getting a little matrix on us here but I will add one more thing too um, this isn't the, the space that I'm in personally but I know LinkedIn my husband use link, uses LinkedIn a lot you can kind of become an influencer in your industry through LinkedIn when you're posting articles that are relevant to your industry when you're posting articles that are relevant to maybe up and coming 
ideas and technologies in your industry. Um, those are great things, right, if you're looking to be um, recruited. But those are also amazing things if you're looking to just be highly esteemed in your, in your company. And so you can do those things at the employee level, but I think you can do those at the business level too. So I want to segue to the question of Liz kind of saying how it's the difference between it being your career and just posting a nice picture. With you guys having it all for as your career, how do you make it so you're differentiating the battles between it being your job versus trying to remain authentic? Liz and I were talking about this earlier. Um, we kind of came up through blogging and social media as these new channels were emerging. So we started with our blogs and then like Facebook pages was introduced. And so then you get a Facebook pages and then what do you know, like now Pinterest is sending out invites. So everybody get on Pinterest and then Instagram comes along. So we've kind of been through like the birth of all these. Um, so I think we kind of started out being authentic and we didn't have to worry about along the way if we were just doing something for Pinterest or just doing something for Instagram, which all businesses have to do those. But because we had been at it for so long, it just kind of came naturally. I agree with that. I mean, it helps when I'm very grateful that I didn't um, know that this could be a, a career. And then I think what happens is that people see these Instagrammers because we're on Instagram, you know, no one's looking at my Google Analytics and they think, oh, I want to travel the world for a living. I'm going to do that when I grow up. And then what happens is that you're literally just trying too hard. You're, you're too thirsty. And what happens is that people are savvy and they realize that that person is full of, you know what? So it, it's, it's not, it's, it's too hard of a sell. And so I think, um, you know, that, so I think luckily for us, we don't have to work hard to balance it because we've been balancing it our, this whole time. That's why we're successful. Whereas if we were just starting out now and trying, oh, here's a perfect, every photo's perfect and nothing's wrong, that's not real and people can see that. Um, the other thing I was going to say is that um, in Instagram stories, it's, an, it's a non-curated, unedited feed. And that's why we all love it and we, it's easy to use and all of that jazz. And something that I always you know, I think people sometimes forget is that I'm obviously not being paid for all the different things I do throughout my day, but I'm still going to tag brands or um, I'll link to um, if I'm wearing something that I know everyone's going to want, I'm going to link to it because otherwise a thousand people will message me asking for it. I'm not trying to sell you that dress. I actually don't do commission-based sales because I don't like asking people to pay my bills. So I just, I don't like it. Um, I, so, but I link to the stuff because it's helpful. So my goal, whenever I'm sharing something is how am I helping solve a need? How am I making someone's life easier? How am I, how am I solving a problem for my readers? And that can be as small as link to the stupid website or link to the bathing suit that everyone's going to want because it's flattering, you know? So I, that doesn't mean though that I'm, that I'm being paid for all of that stuff. So something I never do is write hashtag not sponsored. Because guess what? Most of my life is not sponsored, but that's my actual life. Now, I'm tagging things to be helpful and useful, but that doesn't mean that that's part of my business. You'll know it's part of my business when I use hashtag ad. For us, you know what I found is that some of the when we, we have a few influencers we work with, and our, our favorite ones, and Emma can probably attest to this because she, she does manages a lot of this for us, uh, or she finds awesome influencers, if, um, when they turn us down sometimes because it's not a fit. And then we're like, yes, we love you because now we know like 
And they usually get the best results because when it is a fit, that means they're curating who they'll even partner with to their audience. And um, so we had this one influencer once and she was like this campaign and it just went gangbusters. and was awesome. So the minute like we went to our next client, we're like, we got a great influencer for, for you. And then she's like, no, 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 they won't. Uh, and we're like, what? Are you kidding me? This had to have gone so well for you. And um, she's like, no, that's OK. It doesn't like align. And again, she has strong opinions. Um, so I would say if when you find influencers, if they're a little too hungry, um, yeah, that could be cause for concern. Um, and then. I would say, I like thirsty, yeah. Um, knowing they're transparent, you want to make sure that in, your, influ- your influencer campaign is transparent. And you can't necessarily um, trust that the, the influencers themselves will do it. And so, I mean, it's, it's just um, not only are people smarter than that, they're going to notice if you're trying to have like someone doing influencer work and not being really transparent, it's also it's illegal. So the FCC has, and, but it's amazing. We laugh because like, we're in this space, but so many brands and we work, some of our clients don't know, like, no, we have to have the influencers say it's sponsored. Like they have, they have to use a hashtag ad or you like, you can get ad accounts shut down. Um, which is a huge, if, especially if your profits are based on Facebook advertising or something to get shut down would be, um, devastating. And so that, yeah, the FCC, there's such a muddy area in it and it's changed. I don't know when this all went into place like a year ago. It was officially like you have to use these specific hashtags. Um, and I think it's going to continue to change. And there are some gray areas you can play with, but it gets a little tricky. Um, and so you want to be authentic. It's hard to kind of fool customers out of an influencer um, because then they're not going to be smart customers. And that's probably not any of your customers. Authenticity, I would say that's a big role when it comes to whether an influencer campaign is successful. Do you guys have any other reasons why an influencer campaign could be successful and why people actually do choose to go that route? This kind of piggybacks on what you were saying, um, and it, it also ties into authenticity. So another reason how, or another way that you know most savvy influencers um, are able to be authentic and you know successful long term is that we turn away a lot of what comes our way so i personally turn away 90 percent of the opportunities that come to me um that actually might be on the low end and it's it's tough when you don't have an employer giving you a paycheck and you don't have a set salary and you've got a set mortgage uh it can be tough to turn away lucrative offers and and i'm a healthy food blogger so uh, unfortunately, what I'm turning away are large budgets from processed food companies like General Mills and Oreo and things like that. They tend to have bigger budgets than fresh food brands. Um, but what, I, what I've always believed in, and I think it's because I've never been thirsty, is that the long-term value of my brand is way more important than the short-term benefit of getting a big big paycheck. So I'm really, really, really protective of my brand, which means I say no nine out of 10 times. And I think by saying no all the time, people know that when I am talking about a brand that I'm very passionate about it. I'm really not doing it for the money. Um, Luckily for me at this point, my website pays for the business itself. So if I'm getting paid on top of that to develop a recipe, it's because I love this brand so damn much. I want everyone to know about it. Truly, it's from a place of, of authentic passion. And a way to get there is by saying no a lot. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. I mean, the stuff that comes across our desks is hair-raising sometimes. <laughs> what brands want to do or they want, you know, five blog posts and this, that, and the other thing, and then they, they offer $25 or something. 
ridiculous. Um, but yeah, so definitely um, saying no is the first step, I think, in authenticity. And I hope my readers would say the same, that when they see a post that says hashtag sponsored, hashtag ad, that they know that a lot of thought went into, um, do I take this on? And if I do take this on, how is this going to work for my brand? How am I going to authentically make sure that this... Um, you know, comes comes across as something that Jill would do. So when I do sponsored posts, I try to make it seem like any other post I would write except for someone paid me for it, right? So you're not going to see something wildly different from a sponsored post than you would from a normal post that I would write um, Which is why you're for free. For right, yeah. What was the question again? <laughs> um, why else would a campaign fail? Fail or success. Um, <laughs> But other than, like, the authenticity um, about the way maybe we can touch on, like, how consumers trust and feel more connected with influencers. So I'd be curious to know from you, too, because we I feel as an agency, like, we do the heavy lifting for our clients and our brands. If we just left it up to them to hire an influencer and give them a budget and just say, sure, we'll accept your package, nine times out of ten, and mostly because they probably wouldn't be hiring these two is why, it, it wouldn't have near the amount of success it could in conversions. And it's because it actually takes a lot of project management to make sure you're prepping your campaign correctly, to, to think of what is that end goal? How will her audience resonate with what we're asking her to do differently from like Liz's audience or different, different from this audience? And do we have our back end, like our website, our platform, our offers in place to convert them because on one hand we've seen it happen where an influencer campaign just goes like wildfire and it's success and it's because of that influencer but most of the time it's through a lot of hard work and you can't just place the success on the influencer you have to make sure you had like a legit product and you had your offers positioned right and you you now you got all these followers are you doing email campaigns to speak to them and convert them after the fact it's kind of just a driver of traffic not necessarily a closer of the sale at least for what we do so I'd be curious to know too, and you guys could speak to this, how can brands work with people like you and make it more successful? Um, you guys are pretty like top of your game and pro, but if, especially if they're working with smaller like budget influencers or something like how, what's helpful to you to be more authentic to your brands and like, what do you need from them? Well, I just had a call with one of my clients is Tillamook cheese. And, um, so to answer your question, there are things you can do to make the campaign more successful. So I have two-sided answer to that. One side is to, instead of handing me a contract with all the things you want me to do, because that are, that's like what your company is doing for all your influencers, I think it's a much better approach to treat each campaign individually and say, Liz, you know your business better than I do, so what resonates best with your audience? You've been doing this for 10 years, and your business is very different from Susie's, from Tom's, from Sally's. Everyone's is different. That's It's a tricky thing. It's a, I mean, it's it's not an easy feat, um, but we can help you because we've been doing this. Like we know our businesses really well. And the other thing is that we're working with a lot of other clients. So we can tell you what worked three months ago, six months ago, a year ago, three years ago. Our goal is to make it as successful as possible as well. But if you're limiting me with a contract that's so binding and so specific and so unflexible, then you're going to, you're going to see that you're going to have a limited amount of success. Whereas I loved it. Tillamook was like, Hey, if you have any, here's some ideas we have. What do you think would be fun? What are some different unique ways we could engage with your audience? And I love that because I don't want to do the same thing for all my clients either. And then the other thing is if a client doesn't say that, I always say, 
hey, you know, what's your end goal? Are you open to some different ideas of how do we get there? Um, and then the second half that I would just say to that is that, um, so I've worked with, for example, Sabra Hummus for, since 2013, probably six years now. Dang. Uh, I have no idea how much hummus I've helped them sell. And guess what? They've never asked me, and they don't seem to care, and my rates continue to go up every year. And I think the reason for that is is that I am so synonymous with Sabra Hummus at this point in time that, that, that I am just, people just know that I love Sabra Hummus. I use it all the time. My kids eat it. I buy it all the time with my own money. I don't care if you buy it. I'm not going to push you to buy it. I'm just letting you know that I'm buying it, and then that's why everybody buys it that knows me. But, but you have to remember, I don't have any way to tell you how much hummus I've sold. So you have, and I, Sabra's a huge multi-million dollar company. They're savvy, and they keep hiring me, and, and I think it's because that they trust the long-term value of my brand and my influence, but I know I don't have anything to put in your Excel spreadsheet at the end of the month for your client. But, but does that make sense? You know what I'm saying? And that's tough, I think, because PR people want, they want metrics and ROA and all these little forms filled out 30 days later. And that's super cool. And I'll do that. And I do that all the time. But, but the bigger brands that get it, they're not doing any of that stuff. Yeah. 40% of influencers believe that overly restricted content that's guidelines are one of the biggest mistakes brands can make. Yeah. I'm in that 40%. Yeah. I bet that number is yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think I know a single influencer. We have a question. Um, where, so considering your brand is a larger pool and looking at your full marketing funnel of awareness, consideration, conversion, going through that whole funnel, where would you say that you fall in that, or where would you ideally advise that you're falling in that? Are you helping drive awareness, or are you better forced to click through the box? I'm driving awareness because I don't want to. I don't want anyone to feel. I don't like to make people feel obligated to click on a link and buy something. I don't do affiliate marketing. So I'm purely brand influence. And I, I, it's weird for me to be like, I'm super influential, but I'm just assuming I am because of the growth of my business, truly. Trust me, I'm like, how do they know? Like, I don't have a way to tell you how much hummus I've sold. But I, I do not do click-throughs. Here's the other thing with that, is that, again, my website is over 800,000 pages a month, so way bigger than anything on Instagram. And what I'm creating today is gonna be on there forever. So actually, um, we just had the Super Bowl. Can I say that here? We just had game day. <laughs> and my baked chicken wings are ranked number three on Google right now. I wrote that post for, for Tabasco back in 2013. I probably got paid $600, which is a lot lower than I charge now, and that, is literally went viral the last two months and it continues to all year. But again, they don't know that. Tabasco isn't saying, thank you, Liz in Michigan. She sold lots of Tabasco this week. No one has a single clue. I know, but no, no, no. I get way more money from being paid up front. I don't want to rely on my readers to buy things for me to be paid, for me to pay my bills. I'd like my clients to pay me. And my business is completely, completely the opposite. So I literally just started sharing the, the clothing that I was literally the clothing on my back as I was transitioning from being a working mom to a stay-at-home mom. And that really resonated with my readers. And so um, I make a ton of money on commissions because they want to know what jeans Jill is loving and what sweaters she loves and what sneakers she thinks is the most comfortable for so errands on Saturday. Like Two totally 
Right. It's, it's two totally different business models. But I think that um, creativity from a brand, um, listen, when I go into a brand campaign, I want it to be as successful as the brand wants it to be, right? Because I want to be able to work with these companies over and over and over again. So um, I want the guidance from them on what will make them happy. But then I also need the, the creative freedom to say, like, but this is how my readers are going to react best. So... Yeah, and then we're actually on both sides of that. Um, most of our clients have, many of them have affiliate programs. We work with people that make seven figures, like million dollar plus annual from affiliate commissions. Um, so we, and, and our clients, we're not a traditional PR firm in the sense like we work with these fast growth entrepreneurs and startups and they expect, like they expect results and we're not corporate. Like we don't sit in meetings all day and they don't really care about our big glorious spreadsheets unless at the end is like their revenues that we've generated. Um, so we work a little bit different in that the campaigns we do, we have to somehow some way show a needle is moving for them while also there's this huge intangible value we bring of brand awareness, especially with media coverage. We have a client that should, you never know till it's live, so I'll keep the fingers crossed, be in Oprah next month. Um, and there's so many people will probably go on to buy that product months later that didn't click through on a special code when they saw the online yeah, edition. Yeah, and so there's so much that's not tangible. But um, again, what was that darn question? <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. So I think um, for us, our, we're bringing influencers in on the awareness stage, to get back to your question. And we're also bringing them in. Like if someone hires me, it's more in the conversion because I, I work with brands that are, I understand conversions and funnels. And so usually we'll help them create the landing page so that I'm sending people to a really specific landing page with a specific offer I know converts. For instance, we had a client that makes this like microchip that prevents Wi-Fi radiation that is probably killing us all in this room right now. But um, that's a real thing. We had, I have some bloggers I'll send your way on it. Um, but anyway, we created, their website was was pretty awful at the time. Um, and it would just be unrealistic to have them go through an entire rebrand, an entire new website. But they're going to pay us to get them a lot of media coverage. And it's a pretty controversial hot topic. So we knew we could get them media coverage. But then I knew it wouldn't really service them because they're going to pay all this money to hire an agency to get them PR and media coverage. And then it was going to go to a website that wasn't going to convert. So what we did is we, we built a funnel for them. We built our own landing page for them with an offer we knew would convert. And then we literally could see the ROI. Every time we do a media interview, it started at like, oh, $800. We're at $1,200. We're at $3,000. We're at, and then we could run ads to this track. Like we could, it just kept building. So for us, we come in at awareness, depending on the campaign or then conversion. If it's like a really specific e-commerce type of product. But so I think you could be almost anywhere on there. We're going to have two more questions before we open it to Q&A. Well, if you look up trending for influencer campaign for 2018 and 2019, they say that long-term relationships and long-term contracts are ways to go and that they're a better benefit. Can either of you speak to that? Yeah, I don't like to do campaigns that are less than four activations, um, whether that's over four months or a year. Here's the thing. And I, and I, it's, it's tough because a lot of brands that I would love to work with. So, that, and that's the thing we turn things down for many different reasons. You said a $25 offer. Yeah. There's, 
my dream, many of my dream band brands have no budget and unfortunately we don't work together. Um, but a, another common reason I turn them down is they just have one time only they're looking for one blog post and what sort of value, what sort of brand, you know, authentic, you know, uh, influence am I going to bring someone when I'm literally talking about them one time that to me is not valuable. And so I could take that money. I could do it. But that is not really valuable to me as far as giving them ROI. So I'm very, very cognizant of the value I'm going to give them for the, the, the amount of money that they're spending, which is kind of crazy to me these days how much they spend now. And maybe it's because I've been doing this for so long that it's still baffling to me. And so, again, it's a lot of money to spend on one campaign. And here's why. Is if I'm t I've been talking about Sabra since 2013. So now it's such an organic message that I talk about them all the time, even when I'm not being paid to talk about them. So that is so much more valuable to them. And that's why long-term uh, partnerships are really all I do anymore. And fortunately, brands agree. And I think another reason why I often turn things down for that reason is because they're going to come to me next year with a long-term partnership. Because once they redo their budget, once they have a few other people turned down for the same reason, they're going to start to see, oh, right, this would make a lot more sense if the blogger was talking about it more than one time. Um, I personally have not done a lot of long-term partnerships, but I have long-term worked with the same brands. So it's kind of the same idea. It's just really from the start, we kind of say, like, let's work together ne next month. Um, one of uh, the bigger brands that I work with is a large retailer, and probably over 2018, we probably worked together, like, eight or ten times. So I'm not, like, unlike Liz, I'm not signing, like, long-term contracts, but we are doing business with each other on a fairly regular basis. And again, that is, like, great for, I think that's, it's really great for the, for the blogger, right, because we can depend on that money. It's, I think it's even better for our followers and for your customers as well, or your brand as well, because they can see, like, Jill actually makes that a part of her life. Like, that is a shopping habit she has. That is a brand she loves long-term, more than just, yeah, like these one-offs where this random shoe company wants you to talk about this one random shoe they just launched or something. But when you can see that these brands are really becoming a part of an influencer's life and how they're integrating it into every day, I think it has a lot of power for both the brand and for yeah. the, the influencer. Well, what's your advice for people here? Because um, like all of our clients, they would say, cool, let's try it once and see the results. So that's yeah. what we recommend. Yeah. So how do you recommend they approach that? And that happens, and I get that, because just like every client I work with is different, I'm sure every blogger, influencer they work with is different. So I can tell them all these things that are amazing about me, but I shouldn't expect them to know that without without working with me at least once. So I do, um, if it's a brand that obviously they fit the bill in every other way, and they're just not sure yet if they want to, what I'll do is I'll say, I'm willing to do this as a one-time only thing, but just so you know, I typically prefer to work with brands on a long-term basis. And more often than not, they always come back to me with a long-term contract the next time, but I'm not gonna continue to do one-off opportunities with them. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was gonna add, the other reason why it's so beneficial to do um, long-term relationships, I'm literally looking at my social media assistant right now. And here's the thing, the longer I work with the brand, the easier it is for us to manage all the back end things that they're asking us to do. So, hey, I need the insights for this, or they need me to send the screenshot of all these three channels, or we need, the, they like it to look like this and use these hashtags. And the longer I work with you, the more seamless the process gets. Exactly. And so 
for me to have to retrain my assistant with a new client every week would be so much extra effort that it wouldn't be worth it on my end. It wouldn't be great for my team. And additionally, the longer you work with the same person, the better the relationship gets. So for example, me and Bob's Red Mill, we have such a seamless partnership now that they're just getting more and more value month after month because I see what performs well. I guide them on which videos we should turn, or which recipes we should turn to videos based on past performance. So you miss out on all of that with just a one-time opportunity. But to your point, I'm for sure fine with doing it once. But I, I'm not going to make my business out of doing one-time only partnerships, which, which many people do. Jessica, why don't we open it up for audience questions since we've got about 10 minutes left. So yep. you are dying to ask yeah. a question. <laughs> well, I'm just curious that we, we've talked a lot about how many factors there are when considering an influencer. Um, and it seems you guys are very well established. You know what you will and won't do. You seem very hands-on involved in the process. And as a company who maybe hasn't worked with influencers before, I was wondering if you could kind of touch base on like the pros and cons of somebody who's been an influencer for a long time versus somebody who's oh, just yeah. starting out. Of course, Granted, let's say you guys are have the same audience we're trying to reach, but the pros and cons of the longevity versus just starting out, perhaps. Well, I mean, obviously, right off the bat, budget's going to be a, a an issue, right? So working with a, a veteran in the industry is always going to cost more money um, than, than working with someone that's new. But I definitely think, you know, these micro-infants, influencers or nano influencers, I think can bring a lot to the table. So if you're new to the influencer marketing game and you really want to get your toes wet, it might really benefit your company and your brand to work with a couple of these really small influencers. Um, see how the whole process goes, kind of get your feet wet as far as um, expectations from them and expectations that they might have of you and, and vice versa. And um, use them as some really solid like learning examples um, and, and go from there. Because believe me, when I first started doing sponsored posts, I made like every mistake in the book. So people are going to make mistakes and mistakes can be made on the brand side and the influencer side as well. You know, this is a really, really new industry still. So, you know, nothing's going to go off without a hitch. But um, I think you can also, like Emily said too, is kind of dabble and find some people along the, the spectrum of who's new and, and who's more established and, and using your, your budget dollars that way. So I guess that's kind of the money answer to your question. But I'd recommend most, so we have for our clients who don't spend as much in influencer marketing, there are just softwares or programs for especially that will just create out. They're like agencies for influencers. I mean, they're agencies for like, think of Brad Pitt and his agency. There are agencies for like the celebrity influencers or agencies for like all of you could probably sign up today and be accepted on these smaller platforms, even if you have like 50 followers. Um, and it costs, I mean, there's a fee. Usually it's like right now we're working with one that's like 600 a month. Um, there are ones called, there are different ones called like Influence, Influencer and just these different platforms. So you pay a monthly fee, then you have access to a pool of their, they're like an agency full of, here are influencers. You can set your campaign, you set your rate, you see who applies, and you can kind of see and get a feel right then and there for the quality of the influencers you'll be working with, quality of their photos, quality of their captions. Uh, I think there are some platforms that even make people like submit everything to you, and then you can choose like, yes, I'll take yours and pay you, or I won't. Um, that's good starting small. I'll say the project management side of it is still pretty high, and um, you're not going to hit like the mid tier is where I think the gold is like the mid tier level influencers. You get too high. They're celebrities. They have like way too big of a following. People know everything's like hashtag ad and it's not very impactful too small. They don't have as much of an impact, but in the middle you're, you know, you're 
the middle size influencers are like gold. But as a uh, business coach and story brand certified guide, I work with companies that are starting their trail uh, to become influencers, as well as very established brands that have influence. What I'm curious, my question is in regards to the pricing in the early stages of your uh, economic engine. When you originally discovered that you have a platform that people want access to, what were some of the first services that you sold with you, you, leveraging your influence in that way? And if you'd be willing to, I'm curious what an average range of cost for those could be. I mean, it doesn't have to be hard and fast your numbers, but when somebody says, I'd like to start monetizing my influence, what's the first thing they would sell and what would they charge for it? And then also, you mentioned raising pricing. I'm curious about the psychology that goes into when you feel it's the right time and by how much and how you navigated that choice. So really, it's a, it's a pricing and as specific as you're willing to, to get would be great. Oh, pricing is... Difficult. I, I think pricing for me right now, personally, is a mix of, um, so I kind of do have an agency that I work with where a lot of my social or, or my paid promotions come through. So kind of talking with my rep there and saying like, how does this sound? Because she kind of sees a lot coming through. She knows my influence. She knows my selling power. Um, she's the one that pitches me. So she'll kind of say like, yeah, that sounds about right. That specifically I've done for when I've, it's time to do price increases. Like, hey, I'm thinking about a price increase. We talk about it together. And she kind of goes with that. Other times, I'll be honest, it's just a, you get this random thing in your email inbox and they're like, we're willing to pay you X amount of money. And you're like, that's like, you could just kind of gut know it's either too low or you gut know like, wow, that's like really high. Um, so sometimes you can meet in the middle. Um, but, you know, pricing, I know... A good way that we used, I got started in pricing is there's a website called Social Blue Book. If you're familiar with like Blue Book for like autos, it's basically the same thing. <clears throat> you can look up what your, you kind of link all your social channels and then they will spit out a rough, super, super rough ballpark figure. Same with Ford. Do you work with Ford at all? Uh, Ford.co is a um, online company that actually will give you um, kind of a certification that you have like a real Instagram following. They also do kind of these like visual online um, media kits, which she had mentioned a media kit before. And as a blogger, you can enter your information there and you can get a rough ballpark spit out. Um, that's based on all their influencers that are signed up and that are currently getting campaigns. So I think really like use Google to to figure out if you're on if you're on the paying side and you want to figure out what a fair price is, do some Google searching. I mean, I'm sure there's tons of information out there. Um, price increases. Uh, you can probably talk about that. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, I just did all mine because of you know the new year. Um, so for me, I I basically justify my price increase by my traffic increase. So my traffic is up like 40 plus percent this month. And most bloggers are down 10 to 20% because it's an oversaturated market. So I feel like I'm continually bringing so much more value. And, and I, the, the analytics just show that these posts that have been on my website for years are getting thousands and thousands of pages every month. So you're getting a lot of value. And, and I know that, I mean, honestly, I should be charging even more. So to me, it's just a no-brainer because the, the thing you have to remember is that they are getting for free someone to develop a recipe, 
someone to test a recipe, someone to analyze the nutrition of recipes, someone to style the food, someone to cook the food, someone to shop for the food, someone to photograph the food, someone to edit the photograph, someone to write the content. And then after all that, then they start the promotion of the blog post. So Pinterest, Instagram, the newsletter, on and on and on it goes. It's it's a lot more affordable for them to use a blogger to 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 do all of this work than for them to do it themselves. That would be so many different people, so much more money. Um, I mean, the photography alone is a huge value to them. So to your point, and same thing with videos and things like that. So you just have to remember that they're getting a steal with a blogger who will do all that in their house. Um, so so to me, that's how I, I guess, in my head, justify the money. Here's the other thing. I just continue to raise my prices until they say no. Um, that, that's how bloggers do it. Because the, the thing of it is it's so gray. And you know your rates are too high if everyone's saying no. If everyone's saying yes, they're probably too low. So and that's tough because I'm like you. I can tell you're kind of a black and white person. I am too. I hate the gray space. But unfortunately, um, it is a gray space because like I said, I can't tell Sabra how much hummus I've helped them sell. So I, it, it's all gray. And it's all about it's all about the longevity of the brand. And the other thing is it's all about the long-term relationship that you're curating between you, your client, their products, and your readers. And that's not really something you can put a price on. And that's why it's 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 a tough situation. Yeah. I know it's trust me, bloggers, it's an ongoing topic of what do I charge? Just keep raising your rates till they say no. <laughs> Oh yeah, God! You'll sense. you'll vomit when you hear that. Yeah. Well, no. I was like he. I was like he wants numbers. I'm gonna drop some numbers because I do. I talk numbers all the time. So, um, like the first thing I personally like as an influencer, did, it was like six hundred dollars. Did a partnership, but it was in a group, so it was like one product. So really, like my whole campaign was like twenty five hundred dollars, and I had six or some products at different ranges. Um, but that included they were like featured, and I did a blog, and then that blog was featured on TV, um, and that, and now like it would be probably four times that, and partially just values increase, and also it's scarcity. I don't have as much time to do it. So that's when you work with smaller bloggers, it's going to be a lower rate because they probably, they might have more time and capacity. Um, like in the PR business and agency world, we have like billable hours and stuff. And those just go up also based on scarcity and the amount of time. And then the longer you do it, the more value you have. Um, but with the bloggers we work with or the influencers we hire, um, it's on the low end, it could be like at the $50 for a post. And that's when we do it through one of those platforms. So we're seeing their photography and we're like, okay, and we've done, I think $50 a, a post is the lowest. Um, and that's when we're, get, we're not really getting their influence. We're just getting their content at that point, I would say. And then on the higher end, we're, we're talking the thousands. Like it'd be typical to get like a, a proposal back. Typically, I, we ask, if you're going to pay someone thousands of dollars. Sorry, I'm talking fast because I know we're, we're running out of time. Um, they have a media kit. So you ask for the media kit. You check out their work. But typically, if you're going to ask them to do like a blog post and uh, then promoting that post and they're creating content and they're getting time to know your brand, like you're looking at, I would say, anywhere from like, $2,500 up to like, you know, maybe like $7,500 depending on what they're doing and how long your campaign is. And then if you're with someone really big and they innately have just this really large following, you know, then it's, it goes on from there. Um, and so I don't know, like if they'd speak to what their rates are, but that's like the space we work in for a lot of our clients and they're they're but they have a budget to spend probably at any given time. Like their, their ad budget is, you know, between like the, like 10 to 
20 a month maybe and what they're spending in ads. So they'll divert some of that. Um, it just depends. And then we have these startups that spend no money and they're like the $50 one off posts. So it just runs the gamut. There's really, I wish I could tell you like, here's what the going rate is. It's, yeah, I would say it's really, it depends on how much content they're making for you. And then you do have to think of it as like billable hours to them. How much time does it take them? What is the audience they're going to have? What is your deliverables at the end? And try to like tally that up as you would if you had a marketing person on your team, maybe it's a good gauge. Yeah. All right. I think we're going to wrap it up here with one last question. So based off the concepts that we discussed today, what did the Fire Festival do well in their influencer <laughs> marketing campaign? Other than bringing on a Ja Rule, because at that point it was game over. Other than that, what do they do well? And then what can we learn from truth and marketing? I didn't pay him to ask that as a final question. <laughs> That's great. That's great, because it's a hot, I watched that, and I, it has not left my mind. Well, first of all, they did not have their influencers um, abide by the FTC rules, which is when they were making these videos and posting about it, they were not using hashtag ad or hashtag sponsored. So, um, and my understanding is a few of those influencers have been taken to task over that by the FTC. So first of all, like you have to disclose it's ad, you have to disclose it's sponsored. Um, never ever ask a blogger not to do that. It's, you just have to do it. Um, but I mean, that was one hell of a campaign. You know, I think where they fell short is they just couldn't deliver. I mean, the actual execution of the campaign was flawless, right? Minus the FTC regulations. But um, they got all those people to spend all that money on basically nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that show gave, I have a hospitality background that gave me anxiety oh. the entire time. Um, you know, I think the best thing that came from that is all the money that was raised for the I keep calling them Bohemians, Bahamians, <laughs> you know, like the restaurant owner. I think that was the best thing that came from that documentary is they've all gotten hundreds and thousands of dollars uh, for reimbursed wages. Um, the biggest lesson from that, you know, to be honest, it kind of bummed me out because this is my job and I take it really seriously. And I turned down silly offers like that to get paid a lot of money to post an orange square and, um, you know, it kind of bums me out because I think that those, a lot of those, you know, like the, the fat Jewish and things like that, they give my career a bad rep. And I take it really seriously and I work really hard at what I do. And um, so, you know, it, the whole thing just kind of bummed me out in that regard. So I don't have any lessons. The whole thing was just like a big shit show. I mean, I guess I would say it just goes to show like you need to have your contracts in place. Like it's just like if you were to hire out an agency or you're going to spend on advertising, you have official partnerships and you have actual contracts. And then, um, well, I mean, that's more for like influencers to care, but from the business side of it, um, know what you're selling, know what your call. They knew what their call to action was, but they didn't have a product, but, um, yeah, definitely have. Yeah. And if you're not at that level, cause it get, that gets expensive. You're like, Oh, now I got to get contracts and have legal. Then you start on one of those platforms and you have that third party security. So if your influencer goes rogue and posts something terrible or does something to impact your brand, you're separated with like certain. Yeah. Well, no, I know I'm just trying to make it applicable to actual because none of them will be in that situation, but, um, yeah, so hopefully that helps. <laughs> yeah. Just don't do that. Thank you, ladies. I know some of you had some additional questions, so you guys will hang out for a minute so they can come ask you. So I want to thank you guys again. Please give our panelists a round of applause. And thank you.
you, Jessica, for moderating and all your beautiful slides. Um, again, join us in March, March 12th. We're back at Eberhardt Center talking about maximizing your website. As Liz said, that's, that's her place. So learn how you can do that and uh, incorporate that into your influencer strategy. So thank you, guys. We'll see you in March. Before we wrap up the podcast, we want to mention upcoming AMA West Michigan events. If you are in the local market, we'd love to have you on site for these. Of course, a few weeks after each event, uh, we'll do the podcast version of each of these topics. Coming up on March 12th, don't let your website hamstring your marketing in 2019. Josh Stoffer, CEO of Blue Flame Thinking, will be presenting on website optimization. Coming up on April 9th, we've gathered four local entrepreneurs for a panel discussion. Each entrepreneur has businesses in the marketing space between creative services, promotional products and or displays, and strategy and management services. And coming up on May 14th, think like a journalist, the five key elements of effective brand stories. Those are all on our website. You can go to amawestmichigan.org for details on those. Of course, a couple weeks after each of those events, we will bring the podcast worldwide to you right here on the Marketers in Motion podcast. Until next time, have a great one. Don't forget to like, rate, and review our podcast. We love feedback and we'll see you soon. We're online at amawestmichigan.org and active on social media where you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The national hub for the American Marketing Association is ama.org where you can also find a chapter near you. The Marketers in Motion podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at amawestmichigan.org, where we encourage you not only to subscribe and share our podcast, but review, ask questions, get involved, and engage with us. Don't forget important links, content, and resources will be included in the show notes for this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Marketers in Motion podcast, powered by the West Michigan chapter of the American Marketing Association. What will you do with the information you learned today? Be inspired. Be creative, be bold, set your marketing in motion.